New year, new episode. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Hey everyone, Curtis here with the first backdrop episode of 2021. Our New Year's resolution at the backdrop is to, well, actually get these out once a week. (laughs) Hopefully that uh, resolution fares a bit better than most resolutions do. Anyway, to get things started, we are reaching back a few weeks to chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Matthew, which tell us the birth and origin stories for Jesus. We're going to look at a few of the odds and ends that are in those stories, but which we didn't spend much time on or any time on in our December sermons leading up to Christmas. And we will begin here with the genealogy section that opens Matthew's gospel. As Meredith touched on in her sermon, there's an awful lot going on here in what looks just like a list of names. This is meant to bring to mind the full story of God's people, from the genesis of the people of Israel with the promises God made to Abraham, to the high points of King David's kingdom, to the low points of exile. And the importance of these three things, Abraham, David, and exile, are fairly obvious. But we are also meant to remember the promises that God made to each of them in each of those time periods, that Abraham's descendants would be more than the stars in the sky and would be a blessing to the world, that David's kingdom would be eternal, that God would bring the people, or at least a remnant, back from exile. Not just the story, what happened, is supposed to be brought to our minds, but what God has done and said in each of those parts of the story. Promises that God had made that seem to have been lost in the exile to Babylon, but, Matthew is wanting to say, are now about to start coming true in Jesus. Richard Hayes is a scholar who has been a proponent of noticing what he calls the intertextuality of the Bible. In other words, ways that passages refer back to other passages intentionally, and how we can be helped in interpreting one passage by noticing those references, even when they're not obvious, like an obvious quotation. It's kind of like what we did a couple months ago when we interpreted Jesus's words on the cross in light of the psalm Jesus was quoting, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 helped us understand what Jesus was saying when he quoted it. But Richard Hayes sees something else interesting about the story this genealogy is telling. It was not unusual for a genealogy to be at the beginning of a book about a significant person. It establishes right off the bat the credentials of the person in question. See how important this guy is? Just look at his ancestors. Good bloodlines and all that. A genealogy was meant to burnish someone's reputation, basically. But, well, if that's what's intended here, then Matthew did it wrong. Matthew could have just said, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, like he has said so far. But verse 3 doesn't say that. It includes, by Tamar. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Oh, that would call to mind someone who knows the story from Genesis 38. You mean the Tamar who was unjustly cut out of the family by her father-in-law Judah and who responded by dressing up like a prostitute so that her father-in-law Judah would sleep with her and get her pregnant? That Tamar? Oh, later on, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You mean the Uriah that David had intentionally killed in battle so that no one would notice that he had gotten Uriah's wife Bathsheba pregnant while Uriah was off fighting David's wars? That Uriah? Matthew doesn't have to mention these people, but he does. And then on top of that, Matthew's clearly skipping generations here. We'll come back to that in a a minute. So he's choosing and picking which 
people to mention in this story. So why include Manasseh, Jokaniah, and his brothers, all those kings that we are told did evil over and over in the books of Kings and Chronicles? Matthew could have left them out and burnished Jesus's reputation by just mentioning the good kings that were his ancestors, but he doesn't. Why? Why would Matthew highlight these dark parts of Israel's story when he's supposed to be establishing the reputation of Jesus? Richard Hayes thinks Matthew is intentionally bringing to mind for his readers the sins of Israel's past, the nation's sins that have led to exile and all the promises being put on hold, the sins of the nation that Jesus is now coming to remove so that the exile can end. Matthew edits the genealogy, as all genealogies in the ancient world would have been, in order to make a theological point. He isn't going for completeness. He's going for meaning. The promises are coming true. The sins will be forgiven and put away, which was in itself one of the promises, as it happens. Jesus isn't coming as the product of a long line of remarkable ancestors. He's coming to save us from the real imperfect ancestors who got us into this mess in the first place. A couple quick things on this passage. First, the book begins with what is often translated the genealogy of Jesus. But literally in Greek, it is the genesis of Jesus. So the New Testament and the Old Testament both begin with the literal word, the beginning. This is also how Adam's descendants were introduced in Genesis 5.1, the genealogy or genesis of Adam. So it's possible that Matthew is intentionally referring to Genesis 1.1 here in which case Jesus is remaking the world in some sense. It's also possible he's intentionally referring to Genesis 5, 1 here, in which case Jesus is seen not just as a new David and a new Abraham in this genealogy, but also a new Adam, restoring a new humanity. It's possible Matthew's doing both of these things, referring to Genesis 1, 1 and 5, 1, which is what I think is probably going on. Meredith mentioned this, but the mention of the four women in this passage is not because they are sinful which is very much not true of Ruth, for one thing. It's far more likely that they are all Gentiles. And Matthew is making the point that God has been working in and among the Gentiles all along. And Jesus is just continuing this long-term mission. Another thing, the phrase son of David to describe the Messiah was fairly typical. Son of Abraham was not. Some think this is just a reference to Jesus being an Israelite someone from the descendants of Abraham who will fulfill the promises made to Abraham. Some also wonder, though, if this is a reference to Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, literally, and who God told Abraham to sacrifice before providing a substitute ram to sacrifice instead. So it's possible Matthew is comparing Jesus to that sacrifice, and this might be a reference to the cross. Maybe. I'm not convinced on this one personally, but it's kind of interesting to think about. And last note on this genealogy passage, what's with the three generations of 14 thing? One option is that Matthew just really likes the symmetry of it all. Some think the number 42 was significant in Egypt as a bad omen, and this is somehow a reference to that. That seems like the opposite of what Matthew would be going for here to me, though, so I'm not so sure about that one. Others have pointed out that the number seven was highly significant in Jewish numerology, namely as a symbol of completion or perfection. Think of the mark of the beast in Revelation. It's 666, one short of perfection three times. So if seven is perfection and completion, then seven sevens would be a completion of completion, a perfection of perfection. 
There have been six sevens, 42 generations, Matthew is saying. And now Jesus is the start of the seventh seven. He is fulfilling, completing, perfecting the work that God has been doing through all of these generations. I think this is the primary thing Matthew is going for here myself. But some have also here um, seen a coded reference to David. The Hebrew name David had three consonants, DVD, basically. They were the fourth, sixth, and then fourth, again, numbers in the alphabet. Four plus six plus four equals 14. So 14 was sometimes seen as the number of David because that was the number of the consonants added up. Maybe, who knows for sure, but that is also a real possibility here. Moving on, we get to the story of Jesus's birth and the angelic visitation of Joseph that led up to it. Joseph at this point was likely in the 18 to 20 years old range, given typical ancient rural marriage practices, and Mary had likely just recently hit puberty, which at that time would have been somewhere in the 13 to 15 years old. What's striking here is that both Joseph in this account and Mary in Luke's account are especially commended for their wisdom and their righteousness. Ancient Israel, like most ancient cultures, and more than a few today, tended to view wisdom and righteousness as the domain of the old, something gained over years. It is striking that the young are the ones who seem to be wise and good in this story. It's just one more aspect of the topsy-turvy nature of what God is doing in Jesus. The birth of Jesus by a virgin is said to fulfill the words spoken through the prophet. And many through the years have taken this to mean that the prophecy predicts a virgin birth. But when you look at Isaiah 7, which is what Matthew is referencing here, it doesn't mean anything like that at all. This is what uh, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10 says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. When you read Isaiah, this isn't about a virgin at all. It's about a young woman who is going to get pregnant the usual way and give birth. And then before that child is even weaned, which is what it means when he will eat curds and honey, before he is even weaned, God's deliverance will have come. It's Isaiah saying, you only have to wait a couple years at the most and God will come through. It doesn't have anything to do with a miraculous birth, but rather a miraculous deliverance by God and one that is coming soon. And this highlights for us something important about how Matthew is using the Old Testament. There isn't a catalog of prophecies about the Messiah that Matthew is checking off and matching up stories about Jesus with the catalog of prophecies, or, as many people assume, making up stories about Jesus so that they will line up with Old Testament prophecies. Matthew is starting with stories that are true about Jesus, and then hearing echoes of those stories in seemingly unrelated stories from the Old Testament. But we shouldn't see this as forcing some sort of connection. Matthew has the very real assumption that God is consistent. What God has done in the past, God will do again. That consistent cyclical nature of God's character and God's relationship with the world and with Israel is all through the Bible. 
We highlighted it a bunch in our study of Jeremiah. That's where Matthew is starting. Matthew wants to say, see, God's doing it again. And so throughout, we see him referring to Jesus fulfilling the words of the prophets. Not because those were messianic expectations, but because Matthew keeps seeing echoes of the Old Testament in stories that he has heard about Jesus. And so Matthew isn't making up the virgin birth because the Old Testament says the Messiah needs to have been born that way if he's going to be a legitimate Messiah. There would have been no reason to do that. Isaiah doesn't say that. There were no similar stories in the ancient world. Jews expected a human Messiah born the regular old way. Roman and Greek cultures, they did talk about the gods having sex with mortals and having demigod children, but not like this. The best explanation for a story about a virgin birth is that that's what actually happened. That those are the stories that actually came out of Jesus's birth. Because there would not have been any reason to make it up. It wouldn't have been an important thing to most people. One quick thing that many of you may already know, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So if you're keeping track, Matthew thinks Jesus is a new Adam, a new Abraham, maybe a new Isaac, a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new David, a new Solomon, a new Jeremiah. I'm probably missing some. This is what Matthew means, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's summing it all up in his own person. One last thing from this passage, and I think this is really interesting and really important, There's a cultural disconnect that keeps us from seeing what Joseph does in all of its full context. We are told that Joseph is afraid to take Mary as his wife once he finds out she is pregnant. Why afraid as opposed to angry or hurt or furious? Joseph and Mary live in an honor-shame culture as opposed to our guilt-innocence culture. We've mentioned this before on the backdrop, but one of the differences that there is is that whereas we see guilt being something that attaches to an individual, that person has done something bad, they are guilty. In an honor-shame culture, shame is something that spreads to those who interact with that individual. To way oversimplify, if a person is shameful or has done something shameful and I treat them as an equal, I have lowered myself to their level. I have shown that I am also shameful because I've treated a shameful person as equal. So if I'm equal to a shameful person, I must be shameful too. So when an unclean woman touches Jesus, the usual way of seeing that encounter would be that Jesus would be expected to become unclean as well. The uncleanness would spread like shame. When a sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet and he allows it, instead of protecting his honor from this challenge from a shameful person, the usual understanding would be that Jesus has shown himself to be shameful as well. Of course, in the Gospels, it works the opposite way. Jesus' cleanness purifies the unclean woman. Jesus' honor takes away the shame of the woman and gives her honor. But that's not how most would have seen it at at the time. Coming back to this story, Mary is pregnant before marriage. This is shameful. There would have been two options to most minds, and this would have included Joseph's mind before the angel shows up. Either she and Joseph have done something shameful, in which case they would both lose honor and reputation in their community, or she has done something shameful with someone else. And if that is the case, and that's what Joseph must have assumed here, then there are only two options for him to preserve his own honor. Either he publicly denounces her shame and shows himself to be honorable, 
And by the way, if he does that and can prove that she has done something shameful, then he gets to keep the dowry that Mary's father would have contributed to the marriage. So he can do that. Or he does what he was planning to do, which is send her away quietly, in which case he would have to give back the dowry. She would still bear the shame of being a single mother, but would likely have gone to live elsewhere with relatives in order to make a new start. A man was required to divorce an adulterous wife in this culture. To not do so would be to bring shame upon himself. Craig Keener says this, Mediterranean society viewed with contempt the weakness of a man who let his love for his wife outweigh his appropriate honor in repudiating her if she has been adulterous. So Joseph's righteousness in this passage is seen both in his wanting to send her away because he assumes that she has obviously gotten up to something behind his back, but it's also shown in the way in which he is going to send her away, a method that would have cost him quite a bit of money or property in the dowry that he would have have to return, but would give her the ability to at least preserve her reputation among those who don't know what has happened. But the angel asks Joseph to not send her away. It asks Joseph to do what, in the eyes of anyone who knew Mary was pregnant, would have been an admission that he had slept with her before they were married. The angel asks Joseph to accept shame upon himself for the sake of God's righteousness. And again, this is not an individualistic society. Joseph's family, friends, they would then have to make the choice to either accept or repudiate this shameful man in their midst. This is not a little thing God is asking Joseph to do. This is not a matter of just believing that Mary is still a virgin because God says so. That's hard enough. This is asking Joseph to sacrifice his own reputation, potentially sacrifice his whole relational world. As Keener writes, Joseph's obedience to God costs him the right to value his own reputation. On to chapter two. We covered a good bit of what's going on in this chapter in our sermons, but there are a couple of things to dive into here as well. First, I promised an explanation of how ancient astrology made sense within their worldview. It wasn't magic or emanations from the universe or whatever modern astrologers think is going on. In the ancient world, they didn't know what those lights were up in the sky. They didn't know they were balls of fire millions of miles away. They were points of light that seemed to move in predictable paths. In the ancient world, to grossly oversimplify what varied somewhat from culture to culture, the understanding of how the universe was put together was that there was some sort of underworld, usually seen as the land of the dead, and then there were basically pillars on which rested the earth. And then there were further pillars that held up the sky and the waters that were above the sky. I mean, it's blue after all. Rain comes down from it, so clearly there must be water up there, right? And then above that, moving around the earth were the stars. But, and this is the crucial point here, the whole thing was connected. The earth was not a distinct piece of creation separated by millions of miles or more from other distinct pieces of creation, the other planets and stars. The whole thing was interconnected. So, of course, something big, like the birth of a king that's happening here on Earth, will be reflected in the stars, just like the movement of one piece of machinery affects the rest of the machine. That's where the Magi are more akin to scientists studying to uncover the secrets of creation, more than magicians or fortune tellers, as we might think of them today. 
As we said in our sermons, this was possibly some sort of supernova that the Magi saw. Most likely it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, the royal planet, and a planet that sometimes was seen to be associated with the Jewish people coming together. What One interesting thing I came across is that there are two Roman historians from the late first century, exactly when Matthew was being written and distributed, named Tacitus and Suetonius. You may have learned about them in school at some point. They both make a reference to an expectation that apparently was widespread at the time that the next ruler of the world was going to come from Judea, which is kind of a strange place to think that the next ruler of the world is going to come from. We don't know how widespread this belief was or where it came from exactly, but it is possible that this would have been in the Magi's minds as well and might have contributed to their um, interpretation of the Jupiter and Saturn coming together and then wanting to come and see this king of the Jews. Moving on, we covered Herod's horrendous character in our sermons. He really was a peach. But in verse 15, after Joseph and family returned from Egypt, where they had fled from Herod, Matthew refers to Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. In Hosea, my son is a reference to the people of Israel. Israel is God's son being brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. Matthew here is using the same passage to refer to Jesus. In other words, he is identifying Jesus with Israel as a whole. As we have seen, he is going to fulfill the purpose for which God called Israel out of Egypt in the first place. This is also linked to the Exodus story by the way that Pharaoh responds to Moses' birth by killing the baby boys to try and get to this threat to his power. Herod, the so-called king of the Jews, has become Pharaoh in this sense, thus always with tyrants. The good news, Stanley Hauerwas writes, is that Herods die. Kings come and go, but God's people endure. Next, Matthew quotes what is, again, not at all an obvious reference from the book of Jeremiah. He says, There was heard a voice in Ramah crying in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children and will not let anyone comfort her because they are no more. This is Jeremiah 31, right in the middle of the part of Jeremiah where hope starts to peek out again. But it isn't about the murder of children there. Instead, Rachel's weeping is in response to the exiles being marched past her grave on the way from Jerusalem to Babylon. So why would Matthew think of this passage to describe Herod's command to kill the baby boys in and around Bethlehem? It isn't about killing of baby boys at all. Well, what Matthew is doing is very similar to what he's doing in the story of the virgin birth. He is finding a passage in the Old Testament that has some resonance with what's happening in the story of Jesus. It's talking about her children being no more. Herod murders Israel's children. There's loud weeping and lamentation. So there's some kind of superficial connection there. But he's using it to make a deeper theological point. That passage in Jeremiah is immediately followed, it's surrounded really, by promises that God's deliverance is coming. The weeping will give way to celebration. Matthew wants his readers to remember that too. Just like then, the lamentation over the horrible fate here will give way to celebration at God's deliverance through Jesus. And then finally, another puzzling Old Testament quotation, or more accurately, a puzzling Old Testament reference, because there is no place in the Old Testament where, as Matthew 2.23 says, the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, Again, what is Matthew doing here? A couple theories have been put out here. Perhaps this is a reference to Samson, 
who is a Nazarite who delivers God's people from their enemies in the book of Judges. And Jesus is going to be like that. He's going to deliver God's people from their enemies. Not a Nazarite, but from Nazareth, but also saving God's people. Perhaps that's what's going on. It's a reference to Samson. Or perhaps it's a reference to Isaiah 11.1, which is talking about the Messiah. And it says this, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall lie with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Clearly, this passage from Isaiah is about Jesus, but that beginning with a reference to a shoot or a branch coming from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being King David's father. The line of David was cut down in exile. But Isaiah says a branch is going to grow from the stump of this tree, a nezer, which was the word for branch. Jesus is the nezer, the branch of David's line, and from Nazareth. So maybe that's what's going on too. What is clear is that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a village of maybe a few hundred, a short distance from what was a major city of the day, Sephorus. One interesting historical note, the city of Sephorus, home to maybe 13,000 or so people, it burned in Jesus's childhood and then was rebuilt by the Roman government, who pulled in carpenters from the surrounding countryside to help with the work. So it's very likely that little Jesus tagged along with Joseph in the work of rebuilding this nearby city. No way of knowing for sure, of course, but as I hope was the case with this episode, I think it's interesting nonetheless. That's where we're going to end things for today. We've covered chapters one and two of Matthew. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be worshiping together on Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. You can find a link on our website and we would love to have you join us as always. I will be back soon, I hope, with an episode covering chapters three and four of Matthew. And then also next week, after we look at chapter six in our sermon this Sunday, we will drop an episode that covers chapters five and six of Matthew, and then we'll be caught up at last. At least that's the plan. But anyway, until next time, I hope you all stay well. Bye. Bye.